Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. Peter Banuti and Justin Byers at Banuti Technologies. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, thank, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys on the show. I, I think, well, you guys have done a ton of stuff together, and we're going to talk about a bunch of the stuff you developed. One of the devices that I actually had the pleasure of doing the app design around, and you guys sent me an early version of the actual device but maybe before we get into that stuff let's get to know each of you a little bit better and maybe start off with kind of where you grew up where you went to school and then i'll pass it over to justin and and so peter do you want to you want to give us a bit of background on yourself kind of where you grew up where you went to school and then we'll we'll get into uh what you guys are doing thanks sure i was born and raised in cleveland ohio went to school at a, a prep school in Cleveland, Ohio called Gilmore Academy. Then from there, I went to University of Chicago, I had a full ride to school for four years. I started when I was 16, finished when I was 20, then jumped into medical school at the University of Cincinnati, finished that, trained at the Cleveland Clinic for orthopedics. And then after that, I spent a couple of years running around doing an international fellowship studying in uh, Sydney, Australia, London, Ontario, Graz, Austria, places like that. So I had an international experience learning about medicine and specifically about orthopedics. So a broad background, a lot of different places, learned from a lot of different mentors. Interesting. So what made you want to go into medicine? Was there a defining moment early on in your childhood? No. Uh, what it was, my parents told me I was either going to be a, a doctor or a priest. And okay. the priest part didn't uh, fit very well, so I, I, I had to go to medicine. I wanted to leave and get an MBA, but my parents wouldn't let me. So I got stuck into medicine and became an entrepreneur, unfortunately, with my uh, after doing medicine. Fascinating. Okay. And, and Justin, same question. Give us a bit of background on yourself. Yeah, I grew up in central Illinois, um, and, and I live here in Effingham, which was where Benuti Technologies' labs are at. Um, I went to school at the University of Illinois at Chicago, uh, focusing in computer science, electrical engineering, um, and then lived in the Chicago area for around 10 years, um, working in automotive electronics, uh, working on technologies such as the OnStar system and, and uh, automotive components for a major uh, automotive electronics company before coming back down to the the Effingham area um, to, to start more the startup and, and small company uh, uh, work that I've been doing with Peter now for a while. Interesting. So what got you interested in computers and engineering early on? I think even as a kid, I always uh, took everything apart, you know. Okay. Uh, you know, there's one of those kids that it didn't didn't matter. You know, if, if it was a if it was a toy, I would uh, uh, you know disassemble everything. Um, <laughs> and when I was looking at colleges and college degrees, 
you know, part of part of the reason I went electrical engineering and most of my focus was on embedded systems is I, I just I like knowing how the inside of things work. Um, and, and by learning electrical and computer science, it sort of led me deep dive into that tech space where, um, you know, you, you get to you get to learn all parts of, a, of, a, of an electronic device. Very cool. Okay. So I know you guys have obviously, Justin, you just mentioned you, you had some, or you did some stuff before you two met, but I'm curious how you two met and, and then let's talk about your journey together because you guys have done a ton of stuff together. Uh, sure, Justin, sure. you want to handle that one? You want me to? Well, I think we both chime in on this one. <laughs> All <laughs> so right. At, at one point, I'll just I'll just sort of give where I was at, and then and then Peter can fill in his aspect of it as well. But you know, when I was, uh, you know, it, like I said, I've always been sort of a tech person. But one of my hobbies has always been uh, music, and okay. um, so I've been playing in bands since I was fifteen, uh, and started playing in bars when I was sixteen. Um, and so, and even today, I still play music. So that's awesome. Uh, I, it's been a, it's been a, a, a good hobby and a bad hobby. Um, <laughs> uh, Why do but, you say bad? Well, I mean, there's a lot of late nights, you know. It's, sure. Uh, okay. You know, the, you know, as, as I'm getting older, you know, getting home at three and four in the morning uh, is starting to, to take a, take a toll. <laughs> um, but, but you know, through music is actually. Uh, how how peter and i met peter i'll i'll let you sort of start on how you know sort of where you were at or what the project you were starting and how we sort of inter got introduced through that you know i was uh, I, I moved from uh, all these major cities that i had studied and traveled and i moved to a small town in illinois effingham which is a population only twelve thousand people and uh there's not a whole lot to do in the evening so after i'd work 12, 14 hour days, I'd come home and I'd sit there and look for a hobby. I played a little bit of guitar when I was younger and I started picking up and I said, let's, uh, let's, let's try to do something with that. And I met another guy that helped. We co-wrote songs, wrote, a, did a couple albums together. And our first album, um, we started working on it. And uh, Justin was recommended as a great bass player to come play with our band. And so Justin, I think, was just, just turned 17 or 16, 17. He started joining us. We'd go down in the basement and We'd start to write music together and make a make a mess, drink a little bit, and have some fun in the evenings. And uh, we put together an album, and we recorded an album and put it out. Uh, and so that's how we got to know each other. That's been, gosh, nearly 30 years ago. So I've known Justin a long time through music. And that's in that creative branch of the spectrum. You know, people look at, you know, knowledge, education, and, uh, you know, there's uh, there's the analytical side, which you study in school, and there's the practical side, which Justin is very good at. As an engineer, you figure out problems. And then there's the creative side. Um, uh, we kind of bonded on looking at creative things, writing music, and then eventually we got together and started uh, writing patents together, I guess is maybe a better way to put it. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. We started, uh, you know, prior to, to as, as Peter mentioned, prior to me moving to Chicago um, and you know, released the album. And then even after I left, I think Peter and I always got along. So, you know, we would we'd always sort of stayed in touch. Um, you know, I, when Peter got married. I went over to Italy for the wedding. And, and you know, when, when he was in Chicago, I, you know, we'd have dinner. So we were, there was always a social aspect. Um, and then. Uh, about 
whew, I can't remember now. It'd be early two thousands. You know, I think what sort of happened is, you know, I was in the automotive space and that's when the automotive space was getting a, you know, there were people starting to exit and I started just considering different career options. And around the same time, um, Peter's brother, Boris, who does a lot of the, the at the time, a lot of the uh, operations at some of the Benuti uh, businesses had, had mentioned that uh, there was a lot of the work that, you know, Peter and the R&D group had been working on that had an electrical component and they, they didn't really have anybody, you know, in-house doing that. Um, and so that's sort of where the business uh, aspect of it, you know, came from the, you know, uh, I will say, you know, Boris sort of planted the seed of, of saying, you know, we, we keep having to outsource everything. Maybe it's, you know, time to bring some of this in-house. Um, and it was intriguing, you know, I mean, I looked at the stuff he was doing and, and to be honest, when we played in a band, I don't think I fully understood all of the R&D efforts. You know, I knew I knew Peter as a friend and a and a musician who was a doctor. Um, and then it wasn't until I, I really dove into the medical part that, that saw how much that creativity um, also was reflected in, in the medical and, and business side of it. Yeah, and on the, and the creative side, we had a huge hole in that computer science, electrical engineering are their own unique skill set. We had mechanical engineering which and kind of physics, which was my background. We started putting that together, and Justin was in a, in a you know just a great compliment because he filled a huge hole, but also was also willing to look and try new technologies and innovate because that's thinking outside the box. And Justin and I work, we just click together looking at crazy ideas and say, here's a problem, let's find a solution and let's come up with some creative ideas. And that's how we, we just merged. So it started music, went to, you know, electrical and computer engineering. And now we have, uh, we've been doing things now for, as I said, over 20 years together. Uh, and it's uh, it's a good partnership. No, that that's really great. It, it's fascinating to me how many creative people and entrepreneurs um, played music as kids or still do. And, and I always find like that connection is, is always, I, I hear that from so many people. So it's pretty cool that you guys actually played together and then now you're doing business together. So maybe let's dive into some of the first actual medical devices that you guys built together and then let's work our way up until what you guys are doing today and we'll dive into UVC. Sure. I'm trying to think on timelines. You know, Peter had, you know, the R&D quite a while before I had joined. But okay. the, I think the first one that, that I worked on um, uh, was a concept that, that Peter had. And, and Peter, maybe I'll let you speak to the work that was done before I had, had joined, but on the, the, uh, the suture seat. I think that was a real interesting project that we can spend a couple minutes on if you want to give a little background on that. Sure. We were when I first started. We, I was very interested in minimally invasive surgery, so doing things arthroscopically, endoscopically through small incisions. We looked at the challenges of how you could take macro surgery, where you use a big hole, fillet somebody open, and look at how you could do surgery there, and say, well, patients don't like that. They want smaller incisions, smaller exposures, and how do we facilitate? So a lot of the early stuff was mechanical in nature, whether it was anchors or fasteners or expanding access devices or improved way to visualize. And then as we grew our business operations in R&D group, 
the area that I was most interested in, one of the biggest problems was the ability to tie knots through a tiny hole to repair tissue because you got to take a needle, drive a curved needle through tissue, pull it together. But the biggest headache was trying to stick your finger into a hole and tie a knot and the knot would unravel or tear. So just the, we started looking what industry was doing and industry has something called ultrasonic welding, whether we're at high frequency, you vibrate a material to a similar material against itself. And as you vibrate that, the, at the surfaces, the material would weld in a fraction of a second, you know, chemically bond to itself. And so we said we could eliminate the need to tie knots with this ultrasonic welding system. So it was trying to take something from industry, which was, which was used, and we modified it and said, let's use this in the medical space. Well, there's a ton of issues that, that you need to modify something from industry and try to use it inside the human body. So Justin came on board with kind of a broad palette saying, hey, this is what we'd like to do. And then flip that into saying, this is what, these are the needs and requirements of the medical space, which are quite challenging. And Justin helped, uh, helped and jumped on that particular project. And he can explain how we took it from there and turned uh, the science and manufacturing into the science of doing something inside the human body. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you're, you're totally right. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a, always a jump between, you know, so many of our ideas start with, can we do this, you know, or, okay. or just is it physically possible? And, and, you know, anyone that will tell you all their ideas are great is, is a liar. You know, there's plenty of times <laughs> we, we say, okay, let's try something. Can we do this? And then we go, eh. No, no, we can't. Um, but there are times that, you know, that we, we, we find something that we really can. And that's where it becomes, that's where the sort of the fun and, and, and the, the real work becomes sometimes. But, you know, as, as Peter mentioned, you can't just take a, a big ultrasonic uh, system from the, from the production floor and use it intraoperatively. I mean, there's, there's obvious safety issues, but you have to worry about, you know, stray currents going through the body, which is a big one. And sterility is also a huge issue. You know, the, you've got to, you, all of these things have to be autoclavable. They have to go through autoclave cycles and surgical equipment is expensive. So you want it to be able to go through lots of autoclave cycles. And, and that project was really interesting, you know, and, and it's still around, you know, the, 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 we recently uh, partnered with a, a spin out um, in the UK and have a, a research project going on um, at the University of Birmingham on the use of bio, different biodegradable polymers for suture fixation. Um, you know, that's something that, that we're doing right now. Um, and and it's, it's exciting to still see these going, you know. Um, totally. Internally, that, that project, and, and that's the one thing that, you know, um, I don't think that, that a lot of people either know about Peter or, 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 our, or the company that we run here is that, you know, Peter had a vision and took, you know, funding from the clinic and from the medical practice and put it into an R&D company. And then, uh, it, and, and Peter, why don't you speak on that? But then I, I'd like to go back to the welder, but I think it's valid to this conversation. Yeah, it was important. What I, what I did is rather than taking a job, for example, I had offers at Stanford, Emory, University of Florida, a lot of big places. But I sat there and said, you know, there you 
you have to, you know, go to the department, go through all these protocols to try and obtain funding. How do you deliver that to a project? And my interest was to do, rather than basic research, was to do product development. And so for that, I had to buy an entire facility. I bought a research facility and took it and moved it to a small town of 12,000 people. Uh, mothballed it for a year till I had enough capital myself to hire some machinists and then mechanical engineers and then patents and then uh, electrical engineers. And I, I completely self-funded it. So I took all the profits from my medical practice for a decade and completely reinvested it. So I didn't travel, didn't do anything except worked all the time and put this into technology. And it takes, you know, it's a long time. It, uh, it took a good decade before we actually started to get some revenues from the technologies we developed, but um, it was all self-funded. And then once we would develop a technology, made some royalties on it, we would reinvest that into the next project and the next technology. So it wasn't the idea of making money. The idea was basically, can we build new technologies? Can we solve problems, make life better for patients? And in the process, we would take the revenues that we would obtain from any technologies or even the surgical practice and then put it 100% into the research and development. And so that's been our, our mantra and we've continued to do that for now 33 years. Uh, it's been successful and it's allowed us to really innovate, which is exciting because we can turn on a dime, look at a project, whether we go from a mechanical device like anchors to robotic systems to artificial intelligence as examples to neuromodulation. And we're able to look at technologies quickly, uh, you know, decide if they're worthwhile. We invest our own capital in it and we come up with solutions. And, uh, you know, it's all self-funded, which uh, has, you know, limitations, unfortunately, but it also has advantages because we can move quickly and focus on projects that we think are important. And, and that's part, and part of the reason I, I, I sort of wanted to take that little side uh, bar is because, you know, the, the Suture project, even though we worked on it in the beginning, I think all of us thought it was a great project. But sometimes internally what happens is, is when, you're, when you are self-funded and we've got a core team, um, you know, the, the product that's getting the most traction uh, gets the most attention. You know, right. we don't have enough resources to, to run everything in parallel at, at full steam. Um, and so the, the suture welding project, while, while it was very interesting, along that same time period, we started developing a product for trauma surgery. And it was, a, it was an intramedullary rod system um, and intramedullary rods are used for, for fractures. And the main difference between the traditional ones and the one we started working on was, was this one was a, a polymeric coating over a, of a, over a titanium core. So a, a peak overmolded titanium core. And what we would use is we would use that high frequency welding that we'd worked on with the suture weld and weld these intraoperatively. So if you had a fracture in your ulna, um, you know, for example, as one of the ones we were working on, you could go in and, and, and the surgeon would, would insert this rod and then, then weld the plastics in place. Um, it, was a, it was a real interesting project, but the, the suture weld one got put on hold. Um, and a few years ago, we, we met up with a company um, out of the Netherlands who had a focus on sort of, they, they, are, they build ventures out of what they call dormant technologies. And they, they have a, uh, an idea that, or their business model is, there are tons of great ideas that don't go to market, not because they're not great ideas, but because there's always bandwidth and resource limited. And so they put together a whole fund based around um, sort of 
I don't want to say resurrecting, but taking these projects, which maybe you're sitting without, without getting the attention they need and bringing in some extra manpower to help with that. And that's, that's how the, the project at university of Birmingham over in the UK got started is through a spin out with them. And so it's been very nice sort of seeing some of this stuff that, that Peter and I worked on in the beginning um, that may have been, uh, you know, sitting quietly waiting uh, to get some, some attention, you know, the, the, the amount of spinouts that that we currently have at times is um, intense. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it the, the thing that I find fascinating about what you guys are talking about is you're right. And I worked at the university here for a while in the media department. I was never, but we we worked directly at the faculty of medicine and dentistry, and that was one of the big challenges is yes, you have these researchers and these doctors and other people creating these really cool technologies, but they would never really leave the hospital because making something that you could maybe use or from a research lab and actually productizing it and getting it out so other people can use it is really, really challenging. And what I find really cool about what you guys are doing is you are doing that from kind of idea to productizing it where anybody can use it or different hospitals are use you can use it or, or just like the general consumer. Yes, we have. Go ahead, Justin. Oh, you first, Peter. No, no. I just think, I think you're correct. There's a, there's a challenge between having an idea, building it, delivering it and bring it into a product or in a business. It's different skill sets that oftentimes aren't necessarily within the same individual or individuals. So you have to put a team together to do that. Um, Justin and I have been lucky enough that we've been able to do this uh, with, a, with limited, you know, limited bandwidth and horsepower. We're able to crank out quite a few ideas and technologies. And we, we currently have, for example, seven different companies that he and I have st started and are working on. Uh, and that we're able to actually deliver these uh, to the general market, which is uh, uh, relatively productive. And we've licensed hundreds of others in the process. But it is a problem because it, there are different skill sets of somebody designing it, building it, testing it, and then a different group marketing and selling it. So, uh, again, uh, something we're learning as we, and Justin and I enjoy learning uh, the different phases of this, whether it's the regulatory process, whether it's the manufacturing, the marketing sales distribution, all those are new challenges and different skill sets. And uh, we've, we've worked our way through many of these. The most recent ones are even include areas that insurance contracting and billing and how do you, how you work in a collection model. So um, all fascinating and all different skill sets. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I find very, you know, every day when I come to work is, is, is overwhelming and fun. And at the same time is that even when you, when you sort of, you know, get to a close to a finish line on one, you know, you, you, you hope or think that all of those skill sets will, will translate to the next one, but they, they, they're all different. You know, for example, you know, we have a, another spin out that, that, you know, is we're, we're, excited about we did a clinical trial a couple years ago on a device that uses high frequency sound waves when we talked about welding with ultrasound we were you know we we're in the 20 or to 40 kilohertz but for the high frequency stuff you know we're in the one megahertz to three megahertz range but we started uh, a project where we did some work at the university of 
Montana, no, Montana State University, my, my apologies, on the reduction of bacterial biofilms using high frequency sound waves. Um, and it, it, you know, when it was debating done at MSU, you know, Kevin, you sort of mentioned working at a university, it was sort of done in that sort of university mindset. Uh, right. You know, we, we proved that using high frequency sound waves we can disrupt bacterial biofilms, which is great. There's a lot of applications for that. But then we, we wanted to turn it into a, a, a product. And what we what we started working on was a, a device you know, it's not much bigger than, you know, than an iPhone, um, but it's, it's used, it has a transducer and you use it for treating uh, chronic sinus infections and chronic okay. uh, sinus problems. Um, you know, eventually we'd like to see it used for seasonal allergies, but that's a whole different clinical trial. Um, but, you know, we, you know, that one's another project that we, you know, we've got going on. It's, um, we're, we're doing some uh, prep work and doing a spin out recently hired a new CEO to, to take it to the next stage because, you know, we, we took it internally through uh, proof of concept development um, uh, pilot trial of, of 10 patients. Um, and it, and it behaved and worked, you know, like we hoped and, it, and, you know, the patients were very satisfied with it and, you know, and, you know, we had previously brought medical products to market. Uh, but the interesting thing on this is the approach we wanted to take was more of a consumer product. It was still, it'll still be a medical product, but, you know, we were, we were really trying to bypass the, the possibly, you know, the, the insurance headaches and get something that a patient could buy. Um, right. And, and the rollout that's required besides just the clinical trial work to, you know, to get through the FDA to make a product that you can sell for a few hundred dollars as a medical product is, is quite large. There's a huge sales and marketing aspect of that and, and just rolling out production on that, on that size. So, you know, you, 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 you learn from that. Um, but, you know, recently, you know, we were, we acquired, um, a neuromodulation company, you know, and you go one day working on a product that's an external ultrasound device that you hope will, you know, you, you hope will sell for under, you know, for a few hundred bucks. Um, and then the day after that, you're trying to take what you learn there and apply it to a, or a, a implantable, an active implantable that goes, you know, uh, in someone's head and, and excites the sphenopalatine ganglion. Um, you know, the, the regulatory pathway is is different um but also the the what's required to get there is different and you know that's one thing that I, over the last few years i think we've we've done a lot better at um is really finding those people who can help us on that um because it's one thing to prove it works um but to to get it to that next level um where you can not just productize it but get approval sales and distribution is a, is a, is a whole another skill set, as Peter said. Sure. Well, and I also think too, and, and I would put myself in this category is you come up with something, you're not the right person to actually sell it. A lot of times because you don't enjoy that angle or aspect of it. You don't know how to do it. Combo of both or a bunch of other reasons, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think Peter, I think can probably speak to that. I think that the, uh, you know, I, I'm. I think he he tends to love the uh, the coming up with part the most. You know, I think that's the most exciting part. Sure. Well, yeah, the concept of identifying a problem 
than looking for solutions and what I call looking for the lo lowest common denominator, least common denominator. What's the simplest? Um, uh, what's the simplest solution from a cost or size or functional approach or the least invasive to the patient? Because I always look at things from the patient's perspective. In the past, medicine was always looked at from the physician's perspective or from the hospital's perspective. And flipping this around is it's most important to me to sit there and say, what's, what's the patient think? What's the patient feel? What does the patient want? And I think that's medicine has finally started to turn the corner and say, we need to really address not what the providers want, but what the patients are looking for in terms of quality, in terms of metrics. And so that's what I've looked at for, for, uh, for my, my innovative career is always been try to look at it from the patient's eyes. What do they want and how can I make it as simple, as cost effective, as fast to recovery, as least painful as possible? And that also bridges now as we're going in the, into the commercial space and the consumer space. As again, it's the individual that's purchasing a product. What, what do they really want and how do we deliver something? So that's kind of been my perspective. And I, I believe that adds value. And I always look at problem solving from that venue. Very cool. So I want to talk about UV Seed and how did you guys come up with the idea and what exactly is it? Um, this product started in the uh, surgical space because um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I specialize in joint replacements. Okay. And in joint replacements, infection is the most catastrophic complication that can occur. A few bacteria that enter a wound can sit and make the difference between an incredibly successful surgery and a catastrophe that could end up with someone having an amputation or even dying. So oh, wow. I don't want to talk about the negative side of it, but simply saying it's a severe, severe issue and one that we take as surgeons extremely carefully, especially as joint replacement surgeons. So as we, as I studied my career, infection, infection patrol, control, infection management has always been number one on our hit list. It's one, number one of importance. So in surgery, we're always looking for new ways to decrease the risk of infection, reduce it. Now, uh, we've known for years that ultraviolet light can affect uh, bacteria and infections. It has complications, however, ultraviolet light, as we all know, for example, skin, you get sunburn and you can end up getting cancers and things like that. So uncontrolled application of ultraviolet light is a problem. And we all know that from sunlight. So sunlight, one of the aspects of sunlight is the emission of ultraviolet light and causing things like basal cancer, squamous cell, things like that. So we have to be very careful. So, but, What's unique about ultraviolet in the range of 220 to 320 nanometers, which is a frequency of, uh, of light, if you, if you impart that frequency of light to DNA or RNA, it breaks bonds of DNA and RNA. And so effectively, anything that's reproducing quickly, you disrupt the DNA and you can affect it. So what does that mean? Well, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi, any what we call pathogens, human pathogens, are, uh, are mediated by DNA and RNA. That's how they infect our body. And they also function with the same DNA and RNA. The difference is many of these bacteria and viruses don't have the ability to correct those DNA alterations. So if you apply ultraviolet C in this 220 to 320 nanometer spectrum, you disrupt thymine-thymine bonds 
uh, in the uh, or cytosine thymine binds. At any rate, so you're disrupting the DNA and permanently damaging it and it stops the replication. So effectively, you're killing bacteria, viruses in a very short period of time, in, in, in a matter of seconds. So if the light is applied appropriately, this ultraviolet light is applied, so we call it UVC. C means the range 220 to 320 nanometers, roughly that spectrum. So if you apply ultraviolet in this C range, 223, 20 nanometers, you can effectively kill bacteria, viruses, fungi, very effectively in a short period of time. So I looked at that and we, were, we started looking at it in the medical space. You have to be very cautious about two things. One, the safety, so you don't damage human tissue. And right. number two, that you apply the appropriate dose. So ultraviolet C has been around for a long, long time. But we focused on is how do you apply the right dose and how do you make it safe? So what we came up with was the idea of adding cameras to these systems so you'll see where the light is applied, how you can turn it on or off if an arm, a leg, a body part gets in the way, number one. And number two, with the camera, you can also tell distance, so what has been treated and what hasn't been treated. Prior to that, people would simply look at ultraviolet C and blast it at high doses and hope nobody's in the area, and, and they'd overdose, and that would damage plastics, polymers, other things, but just like you would see sunlight can destroy things. And we said, let's control safety, and let's control the dosage, and by adding cameras and sensors to the system together, we said we can sit there and start treat these things safely and with an appropriate dose. And so that's what we started with in 2013, and, and we've been developing the technology since then. Yeah, there was a day I remember that uh, I, think, I think a lot of people probably have these sort of stories. You know, as Peter mentioned, you know, we, th this started in, in the, you know, 2013, 2014 as a, as a uh, surgical product. But, you know, during the COVID lockdowns, I think everybody, you know, sort of started looking at everything a little bit different. And, and I was working from home because you know, we had the R&D facility shut down. Um, and Peter, you were, you know, stuck down in Florida. Uh, I, I won't say stuck because it's <laughs> nicer than being stuck in Illinois. Um, but, you know, I, I think about daily, we'd have a phone call and sort of go over, you know, what we were working on. And I think it, probably a good 15, 20 minutes of our daily conversations was on, you know, what do we think's happening with, you know, the with the pandemic or the political, you know, uh, aspects of what's going on or, you know, how do you make sure your family's safe? And I remember, you know, um, at one point, I think you had ordered one and I had ordered one as, as well. Um, you know, some of those wands that, that were, were being pushed, you know, um, the UVC wands that, that had been previously out. And, you know, we both sort of got one with, with you know, the idea that we knew how this worked and it's going to be great and this is a perfect environment for you. And that was pretty early on when, you know, you didn't know if you should be wiping down groceries or not. Right. And, and uh, you know, I, I think we both had the comment, I think Peter said it first, but like, I, I don't know if this thing does anything. You know, um, the traditional wands that, that were being sold, um, it, it's a light bulb that you, you shine, but you can't see that bandwidth, you know, that wavelength of light. Um, and you get no guidance. It's basically like a little flashlight. And so we had a lot of back and forth, you know, and, you know, and we, we, at the time I sort of remember sort of saying, you know, I think we can do this better. You know, we've, we've already been working in this space. 
know, we've been looking at it from a medical standpoint, but the, you know, what's out there for consumers right now, it, it's so unfriendly to use and so easy to use wrong. I think a lot of people don't have any faith in it, you know, or they, they just don't know how to use it. I mean, you know, as Peter mentioned in hospitals, they have these, these robots that'll come in and zap an OR or a room in the, the, professional and the the commercial uh industry you know uses uvc all sorts of places you'll see it in walk-in coolers you'll see it all sorts of places but the the lack of confidence i think that the consumers had um made them you know question if it was really working and, and even myself you know and i know peter as well and so as we started playing with it that's where we went back and sort of looked at the work we'd done um and it the first thing it started with was we pulled um, over 500 uh, different pathogens. So published work that people had did on different types of, of pathogens. At the time, there was no data available for COVID. Um, but I grabbed everything I could find on bacterias, on viruses, protozoa, basically anything I could find. And we started compiling all of this information and to create a predictive algorithm. And so the first step, what we wanted to do is where this sort of started is, you know, at the beginning, we were thinking, even if you had a way to sort of visualize the space you were cleaning and the amount of time, that's a huge step forward from what was out there. And so, you know, the predictive algorithm, you know, started working with our prototype hardware and we could measure distances. And we got a system that that we thought you know, uh, you know, the, the prototype, we sort of used it and did some demos and, and showed people and everybody said, you know, yeah, I, I, I see this. I understand, you know, how long I'm supposed to use it. It'll tell you, you know, we estimate you've reduced this much bacteria or this much virus. And that was sort of the first step in people going, yeah, I, I like where this is going. Um, and then through other conversations we had, you know, sort of during the, the, the COVID lockdown, you know, this this concept of visualization is the other thing that was really missing. You know, when you when you wipe your table down with a with a Clorox wipe or your your um, you know, Peter and I both used to travel a ton, you know, uh, it's starting to pick up again um, you know, or your airline tray table. Um, yeah. <laughs> you wipe it down and you can see where you've wiped, you know, it's wet, yeah. um, you know, with UV, you don't have that. Um, and that's where we, we sort of brainstormed and came up with this augmented reality concept. Um, and I think that's really what makes it user-friendly to use. So now, you know, if you, if you grab one of our devices and you, um, you know, you put it on your phone and you open up the app, you, you can see where you're treating. So as you're treating your, your tray table or your, you know, your hotel remote or, or, or anything, the 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 screen as you watch it the we overlay a visual indicator um which is a real fancy way for saying it, it turns blue and the bluer it gets the cleaner it gets um and so if you hold it in the same spot it'll tell you you know you've got so many seconds until you hit 90 percent reduction so many seconds until 95 99 and as you go around the table you sort of color in the table um and it 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 gamifies it a little bit, you know, um, which is, uh, you know, I think that's a trendy word that people like, 
but it makes it easier to use. You know, we give this now to people to do a demo or play with it. The gamification, everyone gets that. You know, there's, you, 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 you paint the table. It's, I'm done. I, I understand that. And then you can pull back and sort of take a look at it through the phone and you can see, oh, I missed a spot over here. Or, you know, I, I, I missed a big area. That's something you didn't have before with UVC. And I think that's really what gives us, um, you know, the, 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 the usability that we want. You know, like Peter mentioned earlier, when we come up with ideas, we're not just trying to come up with a gadget or a new medical tool to sell. We want something that makes things better for someone. And I think that that gives that to them. You know, and yeah. the other thing we go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. The, just the, the, the come there. What, what's one of the biggest challenges in any kind of treatment is the idea that you're protected when you're really not. That's right. this idea of the dosage. And so many people would be using certain devices, especially around COVID. And they think that they're protecting themselves. They think they're disinfecting or, and they're not. So, for example, you apply alcohol to a surface, 70 percent alcohol, which is what's in these wipes. That takes up to three minutes before it actually disinfects the surface. Oh, I didn't know that. Some, wow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That doesn't kill. So, for example, and this goes back to surgery. When we sterilize a leg, disinfect the leg before we do a procedure, we have to hold the leg. We put the alcohol prep on, and you have to hold the leg for three minutes. Three minutes so that the material dries and then the full disinfection. So most people have this idea that they wipe alcohol and it's now instantly disinfected. It is not. It takes time. So this is this issue about false security where you think you're protected and you're not. And to me as a doctor, that is the single most dangerous aspect of any type of therapy or treatment that you think you're getting cured, you think you're safe and you're not. So people have these mistaken ideas, these germicidals are effective and they're not treating it appropriately. They're not given the appropriate time to dry and everything comes and then you can treat. So with UVC, that's why we developed this safety and dosage protocol. So one, you're not going to damage any external tissue. So for example, you can't put uh, you can't put UVC on your skin or not for a certain period of time. So if you get a little dose, that's okay. But our, our algorithms shut it off, immediately recalculate the dosage. But then the second is with Justin's concept where you see what you've treated, you know that that area is treated and you have the security to know that you've done the, you're actually in a safe zone. And that's one of the big problems with any of these ultraviolet Cs and, uh, and any of these types of germicidals and disinfectant. They give you a false sense of security to think that you're safe from COVID or other pathogens, uh, which means disease-causing bacteria, virus, when you're not. And that is a big risk. And that's a big problem. So we went and tried to say, how do we make this so it's universal, it's safe, it's effective, and it's going to do what it says it does. Nowhere on these Lysol wipes do you ever see that you have to wait up to three minutes. You simply wipe it and you think you're safe. It's absurd. It's not true at all. So these are things we learn from surgery and we're trying to teach patients. And that's why these, if you're looking at technology, I think having physicians and surgeons, especially to understand will be much more helpful and can look at things critically because we're making a lot of mistakes in the way we've treated COVID so far. And that's one of them. Interesting. The, the one thing when you guys sent me the device and I put it on the back of my phone, the one thing that, I was completely fascinated with it compared to other solutions on the market. Like you mentioned, the one is 
I I think everybody this day and age goes everywhere with their phone. You can forget your wallet, but everybody brings their phone everywhere, right? And the fact that it's attached to my phone makes it way more useful and that I will always have it where trying to remember, you know, you're getting the kids out the door and, you know, trying to remember to bring this extra device. I think a lot of times people just forget and something it's so simple to do, but people forget stuff all the time. But if it's just attached to your phone, it goes everywhere with you and you never know when you're going to need to actually use the device because you feel like something's dirty and you want, or there's germs on it, right? That's correct. And that's why we looked at what's an ubiquitous device, something that you'll always have with you. How do we build around that? And the reason we had the patents going back to 2013. So we've, we've been working on that for nearly a decade and we had patents approved and issued. But what we, what we did is when, when COVID really started to rear its head in about uh, January, February um, of 2020, it is now, we, we said, look, at, you want something, the disinfection device, you can't hold some big wand or carry things around with you. The second is that you needed processing power. You needed right. the camera. You needed the ability to have the computer systems in place. How it would be very cost ineffective to build a device. So Justin and I looked at it and say, how can we use the power of your mobile device so that it's cost effective for the patient? Add these bolt-on features, Bluetooth them into your existing device so that it becomes, you know, friendly to any mobile device. We started with Apple and iPhone just because. Uh, the MagSafe technology and things were coming out. We said that should be our initial focus. Um, but the big issue was for this thing to be usable and workable, it's got to be somewhere where people have it with them all the time. And so we, that's what we strove. And then we debated, should we put it in the covering of the phone? Should we put it in the case of the phone? And then we ultimately settled on a small lightweight attachment that Bluetooths and uses all the technology within your phone, the cloud, the AI, the camera system, and allows us then to use this multi-purpose device uh, in the most cost-effective fashion we could. Because if we had to reproduce everything in your phone, it would be so cost-prohibitive the average person couldn't use it. So we basically piggybacked on the mobile device and said, we'll provide the additional features that the mobile device is, is missing, small battery, small sensor for distance, um, use the camera, use the computing power of the phone, and then add the ultraviolet LED to it. And, uh, and, and, and that's how we came up with this concept. And uh, we, then, we, then we drove it. We tested it for a long time. I mean, Justin and I tested this for a good two years, went to number markets, everything. So we wanted to make sure all the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed. Because, again, we want a device that's safe. We want a device that's secure, that's going to do what it says it does. And we want a device that's going to apply the appropriate dosage for the amount of time you need, not too much, not too little, so that you actually are confident that you're getting uh, a disinfected space. And, and it almost ties all the way back to our earlier conversation, you know, as we, as, as we did the first device, um, you know, and, and, and Kevin, I think you saw one of the very first ones yeah. was much thicker, you know, um, when, when we did the first one, it was a, you know, we proved that the idea out. Um, but we also recognize that when you're going into the consumer space, that um, the way something looks to a consumer is much more important than it is to a, a, a patient who's under anesthesia. Um, yep. You know, they don't really care at all. Uh, but but consumers, you know, are really into that. So you know, we teamed up with a with a design group, you know, out of out of out of Valley, um, who's worked on you know we 
not allowed to say some of the products, but I mean, some major products that, you know, everyone recognizes. So we went with a group that had a lot of history um, in consumer electronics and form factor, because, you know, one of the things, you know, that I think Peter and I will both, I've heard him say this and I say it all the time as well. I mean, part of the thing about, you know, making a, a successful product or partnership or venture is you have to know what you're good at and you have to know what you're not. Um, and if you always try to do all of it, you you probably won't end up with a, with as, is a good of result is if you get people to supplement with what you're not good at. And, you know, I mean, none of us are, are, you know, artists, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we, we don't say that industrial design is our forte. And so it really helped out getting a group who's done form factors that, that understand what the consumer wants. And what's nice is, you know, with the final implementation is, you know, just, you know, about the thickness of a pencil. And, you know, if you've got an iPhone 12, you know, or, or above with the MagSafe, it just pops on the back. You know, there are times where I leave it on mine all the time. Um, there's times where I'll pop it off and throw it in my briefcase. You know, one of the one, you know, anecdotal story, you know, that I that I think of quite a bit when when we talk about this device is, you know, we you know, COVID sort of fast forwarded this. You know, we talked right. earlier about we have limited bandwidth, but, you know, when we're all stuck at home, this became, a, you know, a, 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 we saw a, a space that, that needed a better solution. Um, but I always remember there was a flight when when we were working on the sinus project that I was on. Um, and I don't consider myself a germaphobe, but this stuck with me forever. And it changed sort of the way <laughs> I look at airplanes. Um, I, I, you know, was it, on, on the flight in the, the, I was in the center seat. I had the real glorious center seat. And the lady in the window seat uh, changed a dirty diaper um, on the tray table that yeah. uh, wasn't just wet. It was, it was his number one and number two in there. Ah. Um, and then handed me the diaper to give to the, uh, to the flight attendant. Um, and the uh, whole time I thought I have eaten hundreds of meals <laughs> off of tray tables. And I know that's not the first time that's happened. And it sort of made me go like, these airplanes are disgusting. You know, yeah. there's no way that those are getting cleaned. Um, and so, you know, even as this device was sort of developed, you know, there was the idea that, you know, people are, are, are worried about COVID, but I think also consumers now are more aware. People are just more aware of how easy, you know, infections, uh, where their bacteria, their viruses everywhere, you know, three or four years ago, there were plenty of people who blissfully didn't think about dirty tray tables and stuff like that. But but now I think everyone recognizes, you know, COVID made everyone aware, you know? And and I think there's a lot of people that think, you know, there'll be cycles of COVID. It'll come back and it'll, it'll fade. And we're, you know, we're seeing that in other countries, but I don't think people are forgetting the fact that there is bacteria and viruses everywhere. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really happy with with this device is we're coming back out and, you know, people are traveling. I'm on planes more and more. And, and I reference planes a lot because I, I, I don't know, for me, that's my my dirty spot that in yep. you know, hotel hotels, you know, I always just feel like you never know what's what's in there is 100 percent is that, <laughs> is that you know, I have this in my briefcase now and I sit down, you know, we 
we had a um, a show out at CES. We we you know we displayed this at CES this year, and I you know as soon as I plopped down in the in the flight, you know, I pulled it out and treated it, and you know, I I didn't treat it because I was on the way to show it off at CES. It's because I just it made me feel a little a little better about sitting in that plane, you know, um, and and I think that's what you know the 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 thing that that we want and we hope people you know will appreciate it is you know what we're trying to to do is give people a way that they can they can have a small device with them and and like you said it's always it, you've always got your phone but it it allows a little bit of that I don't want to say safety but a little bit more confident that you know you you're you're in a little bit cleaner or or safer environment you know um, because you know bacteria and viruses aren't going away. Yeah. Um, and, and people are getting back to every day, you know, and, um, you know, shared keyboards at work or, you know, um, I recently was, we sent out a unit, uh, that was demoed by, a um, uh, um, like, a, a, a parenting blog, a mom blog. Yeah. Um, and it made me sort of think back to like, when I, when I, <laughs> my kids were younger, um, that you know, I, I didn't think of it at the time, but boy, dropped pacifiers or the, those car seats are just a hot mess. And they've always got the cloth interior. And there's a yep. lot of there's a lot of things that you can't wipe down. Yep. You know, even if you are willing to to wait the few minutes, you know, for the, the disinfection to work, you know, the all of those all of those kids toys that they put in their mouth, you 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 can't use a wipe on cloth. You know, there's yep. a lot of things that you, you don't want to wipe down. You know, you're in a you're in a restaurant that maybe, you know, I, I love I love good food. And it seems like some of the, the best food comes from the shadiest places, you know, uh, <laughs> yep. and, and you can't wipe down that silverware. No one, you know, even if you had a Clorox, they're, they're all scented. I don't want that on my on. My, uh, <laughs> but, you know, if I can zap a little E. coli off my fork before I eat it at a, at a, at a shady place, you know, it makes me feel a little better. Yeah, no, that I 100% agree with you. It, it's fascinating. The other thing, and we're kind of out of time, but I, I definitely want to cover this. That other thing that I found really cool about the device is you're doing detection. Like if I stick my hand in, the, the device stops working. If a pet or something comes through, like you built in a bunch of safety measures around um, the other, like the device as well, which I think is is worth mentioning. I know you kind of covered it quickly, but I think it's yeah. it's important to reiterate. I mean, that comes back from the surgical days, you know, right. or, or I mean, we're still in the surgical days, but you know, when you're, when we're working on a device that's going to be implanted, you know, in, in, in someone's head or, or a device that you're going to do surgery with, or as Peter says, you know, you, you do, he does, you know, he's done, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of surgeries over the years, you know, that becomes a priority is, is, is safety for the person using it. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. But we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the device, and any other links you want to mention? Sure, sure. So um, for on the device, you know, you can go to uh, www.uvseed. That's uvceed.com. We also have a presence on uh, most of the major uh, social media platforms. Um, the, we should have an Amazon, uh, store open within the next week, uh, for purchasing online as there's also purchasing on our website. Um, hopefully in the next few 
month, maybe month and a half, you'll start to see this device at some major uh, brick and mortar cell phone stores, um, cool. which is exciting. Yeah. Um, and then for more information on any of the other projects that we, we've been working on, I think we have links on everything out of uh, technologies.com So that's B-O-N-U-T-T-I technologies.com. It's got more information there on our sinus project, the the, the neuromodulation projects we've been working on and, 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 and all of our ultrasound stuff as well. Perfect. Well, Justin and Peter, I really appreciate you both taking the time of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have the rest of your days. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.